Today we are carrying on in our examination of the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in chapter 4 at this point of Matthew's account, and uh, this is the point where Jesus is really at the beginning of his public ministry. God has undoubtedly been preparing Jesus for this moment. We don't get to see a whole lot of that preparation. Uh, There is not a lot recorded about Jesus' childhood or his teen years or his young adult years. But Matthew and the gospel writers apparently uh, did want us to know about a couple of things in terms of Jesus' preparation uh, before he went public. Now one of those things was his baptism. And Pastor Kyle uh, led us through a great study of that passage last week. Today we are looking at a second step of Jesus' preparation. And I wanted to introduce uh, this subject by talking about a bit of a phenomenon that people are noticing in France. Now, if you know anything about French culture, you know that the French love their food. Food is actually a huge part of any culture, but particularly so in France. They have their own style of cooking, their own kind of cuisine. Uh, If you're a bit of a foodie, you probably recognize the name of Julia Child. Julia Child was an American chef, but she built an entire career on bringing French cuisine to the American public. So there's quite a pedigree in uh, French food. But in an article that was reported uh, back in uh, 2013, actually by the BBC, uh, they were noticing for the first time that there was more French people going to fast food outlets than were going to the more traditional restaurants and the bistros and the traditional cafes. Now, that might not seem like much of a change to us, but to the French, that's a bit of a sea change. As one bistro owner put it, uh, the French have the bistro and the restaurant in their genes. Uh, It's part of their culture. one of the things he said was, uh, there's no pleasure, pleasure for the French to be sitting in a sandwich shop. But with uh, tight finances, uh, with busy schedules, and with the quality of fast food uh, rising and getting better in recent years, even the French have switched their allegiance away from their national identity that centers around food and they've gone in another direction. It's a reminder of how quickly we can all switch our deeply held allegiances if we perceive something else to be of immediate benefit to us. Now we all do this, not just with food, but we can do it with our favorite car brands, with our favorite sports teams, with our favorite movies, whatever. And we can very quickly set aside our deeply held convictions and commitments and opt instead for something that seems attractive to us in the moment, especially if it will give us some short-term benefit, uh, maybe at little cost. I wanted to start with this because what I think the passage of Scripture that we're studying today is really about is this kind of idea. We're looking at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And for those of us who are familiar with this account, uh, we might think that this passage is about Satan trying to trip Jesus up or trying to get him to make a mistake. 
And we might see here an example of the way in which Satan does that to us. And it is about that. But I think it's about much more than that. It's not just about us getting tripped up momentarily. It's not just about choosing a particular right or a wrong. This passage asks a deeper question. And the question is this. Where does your true allegiance lie? To what or to whom have you given your deepest commitment, the deepest allegiance of your heart? And will you be true to that allegiance, that commitment, when another offer comes along, something that looks better, something that maybe looks less costly, something that offers you an immediate reward, something that you want even if you know you have to betray your first love to get it. Let's keep those questions in the back of our minds as we read through the account. So again, we are in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to go through verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now as we get started, we want to set the stage here just a bit. Uh, in verse 1 of this chapter, we're told that Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. This seems to happen right after or pretty quickly after Jesus' baptism. And it's pretty clear this is God's idea. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit for this express purpose to be tempted by Satan. The first question we might ask is why, why would God do that? Why would he lead his son into the wilderness for that purpose? Part of the answer, I think, lies in this theme of preparation that we've been talking about. Jesus is preparing for his public ministry. There is a new beginning coming. And we get a hint of that in reference to uh, the wilderness. In prophetic writings, the wilderness was often referred to as a place of new beginnings. John quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 when he talks about the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Hosea refers to God, calling his people into the wilderness, where he will give them vineyards, 
remove their worship of idols and make a covenant with them in which they shall know safety and mercy. So the involvement of a wilderness here is a sign that God is about to do something new, something amazing. And at the start of things here, God also seems to be using this event to declare the fitness of Jesus to accomplish this new work. What we're going to see shortly is Jesus responding to the temptations that Satan brings. And he's going to respond to them by quoting from the scriptural record of the people wandering in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And we read about this back in Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. And you may recall the way in which God brought his people out of Egypt, but had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, ultimately because they failed to trust in him to bring them into their new home. Israel failed in many ways in that desert wilderness. But now here, with each temptation, and by using these quotes, Jesus seems to be affirming that where Israel failed, he would succeed. Through this testing, God declares the excellence of Jesus by showing him worthy and able to withstand the schemes of the devil and to accomplish the work that God has given him to do. It's a tremendous testimony to the majesty and the perfection of Jesus Christ. And I think God knew that his people would need to see this account and receive this reminder down through the ages. He knew that we would need to take encouragement from it. Because we all know Satan's schemes did not stop with this testing of Jesus in the wilderness. We all know that Satan's attempts to, to trip us up, to, to cause us to walk away from God, are constantly there. Satan is constantly nipping at our heels, looking for ways to make us fail. He is relentless in this. His harassing of Christ was constant, I am sure. You know, when we read this account, it kind of sounds like Satan just came to Jesus at the end of 40 days and gave him these three temptations, and then he went away. I don't think it actually worked that way. I think Jesus was constantly tempted by Satan. We just have these three temptations recorded for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I think Satan enjoys his work. And he's hard at it. And he would have done it with Christ. And he certainly does it with us. You can be sure that Satan has not forgotten us. But here's the thing. Neither has God. And Jesus is more than equal to the task. In the midst of our struggles against temptation and sin, we need to remember this assurance that we read here that we can know victory against Satan as we rely on Jesus' strength and power. Now, there are three temptations that give us a good picture of some of the key ways in which Satan will try to tempt us. And I think it's important for us to study these because by looking at them, we get a little bit of a window into the way Satan works and we can be a little bit more prepared when he comes to try and tempt us. In the first temptation, Satan attacks Christ's physical needs. 
Christ has chosen to fast for 40 days. And after that period, Satan comes to Christ and challenges him to turn the stones into loaves of bread. Now, Matthew reports Satan uh, as using the language, if you are the Son of God. But I don't, I don't think he's really questioning the identity of Christ. He, he knows who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He means it more in this sense. Since you are the Son of God, since you are the, the Son of the Almighty, then you have the ability to turn these stones into bread. So just go ahead and do it. Use your power and satisfy your hunger. And here's the question. What would be wrong with doing that? What could be wrong with taking away hunger? I mean, we have Christian agencies all over the world that every day are alleviating hunger all over the world. And Satan is absolutely right. Jesus has the ability and the power to do that. And furthermore, there's no denying the need here. Christ, after 40 days of fasting, would have been absolutely ravenous. So the need is real. The need is urgent. Jesus can do it. So what would be wrong with Christ just turning these stones into bread? Well, we might not think so, but Jesus refuses to do it. And instead, he offers a quotation from Scripture in response. And, and the reason he won't do it, I think, is hinted at by the Scripture that he chooses. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which affirms that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you go back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 8, you get a little bit more of a feel of what Jesus is implying here. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is speaking to the people and he's encouraging them to not forget the way in which God has led them through the wilderness. And Moses says that God took them through the wilderness. He did that to show what was in their heart and so that they would be humbled. And he furthermore says that God deliberately, he deliberately let them hunger and then miraculously fed them so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone. He wanted them to know that they needed to trust in God as the ultimate answer for their need. In other words, there's a greater priority in God's plan than our personal comfort and provision. There was a divine purpose for the hunger that God's people felt in the wilderness. There was a divine purpose for the hunger that Jesus felt as he was in the wilderness. And in this moment, Jesus had a choice. He could choose God's plan, hunger and all, and maintain his allegiance to God and wait for a better reward. Or he could choose Satan's way and make a sandwich. Jesus chose God's path. The question that the text raises for us then is, is what about us? Will we trust in God's provision? Will we maintain our allegiance and our trust in God and trust in his answer and the timing of that answer? Or will we break with him and choose another way? Would we rather be hungry in God's plan or have a full stomach in Satan's way? Would we rather have the pain of God's path or would we rather choose the drug? 
the bottle, the lie, the illicit relationship, the vice, the pleasure, the treasure, whatever thing makes us feel better in our need. The question is, will we in those moments maintain our allegiance to Jesus? The challenge for us is to maintain our trust and to stick with him. Now in the second temptation, Satan takes a slightly different tack. The text tells us that Satan takes Christ to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's not clear if he actually physically does this. Uh, He may just simply call Jesus to it in his imagination, but that's a little bit beside the point. Satan wants to draw Jesus' attention to an idea, and he suggests to Christ that he throw himself down from the temple, implying that surely God will rescue him. And to add pressure to the ask, Satan throws in a scripture verse. And he's, Satan is so clever in, 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 this, in this procedure. So he adopts the same tactic that Christ just used by quoting scripture. And he throws in one of his own. So he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12 where the assurance is given uh, that God will indeed send his angels for the protection of his own. Now, on the surface of things, this seems like a rather dumb strategy to me on Satan's part. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm in no hurry to throw myself off uh, the top of a building. I mean, what, what would I possibly gain by doing that? And so I, I'm left to ask, what, what exactly is the temptation here? Uh, for Jesus? Why would he even want to consider doing that? Well, there may be a couple of things. For Jesus to throw himself off a building and then to either float to the ground or to be caught before he landed would would be quite the miracle. Uh, It would go a long way to helping people realize exactly who he was. And so in one sense, I guess, it would kind of help his message. There's a temptation there. In addition to that, think of the affirmation that Jesus would feel at this obvious display of God's protective and loving hand. To be saved from so obvious a danger, it would be personally encouraging and strengthening for him. So I think there is a temptation here for Christ as well. And after all, God does want to protect his own, doesn't he? So again, uh, what would be wrong with doing this? Well, Once again, you always got to go back and check the context of the scripture that is being quoted and used. And if you go back to Psalm 91, the the verse that Satan used, and we read a little bit more of that psalm, you will quickly realize that when God speaks of sending his angels of protection, it's clear he's sending them to those who live for God, who live in the shelter of the Most High, and who abide in him. The psalm is really speaking of God's help coming to those who encounter danger in the course, though, of them following God's plan. There's nothing there about us being able to do stupid things like jump off a building uh, and expecting God to save us just because we want to see him do it. And once again, there's a clue here to the problem with Satan's suggestion in Jesus' response. So Jesus responds 
by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where the people are instructed to not put God to the test as they did at Massa. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 17, where we read how the Israelites were thirsty in the wilderness, and so they demanded water uh, to be provided to them, all the while questioning whether the Lord was really with him. Was he really going to take him into the promised land? Was this really happening? Like, Why did he bother to take them out of Egypt in the first place? And this is the essence of the temptation, really, to question the love of God, to call into question his wisdom and his plan, and to demand an action from him for the wrong reason. It's an attitude of doubt. It suggests that we can compel God to act for whatever reason we may have, even if that is to assure uh, our doubt and our lack of faith. It's like coming to God and saying, look, I, I need you to do this, and then demanding that he does it. It's an attempt to test his character and his love rather than to live in obedience and trust in him. People still do this kind of thing today. I was reading the other day about an article from Yahoo News where Brittany Tarr writes about an occasion in 2006 where a Ukrainian man actually lowered himself by a rope in the zoo in Kiev into a lion enclosure. And there were, there were four lions there. And as he was lowering himself down into the enclosure, he yelled out, God will save me if he exists. And he proceeded to take his shoes off and walk toward the lions. One of which promptly went up to him and severed his carotid artery and killed him in front of a large crowd uh, that was watching uh, in horror. That's a rather obvious mistake. I don't think any of us are going to get into a lion enclosure uh, anytime soon. But we can make the same mistake, but maybe in more subtle ways. We can put ourselves uh, in risky situations of our own making and then just expect God to rescue us. Or there's another way that we can come at this. Sometimes we may find ourselves saying, you know, if God really loves me, then he will do such and such. I, I expect him to do that. He will do that for me. Or, you know, God, if you really cared about me, you would have done this and that. When we say or believe such things, we're really chasing after the same temptation that Satan tried to use. Namely, this temptation to tell God how he should act and try to control God. And make him act in ways that we want, instead of humbly and obediently following and trusting in him. And so the choice comes to us again. Will we maintain our allegiance and our trust to God and his plan? Or will we try to go our own way? The third and last temptation in this account is perhaps the most obvious and the most direct assault on Jesus. Jesus is again taken or called to imagine a high mountain from which he can see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan offers to give Christ all those kingdoms if Jesus will just bow down and worship him. Jesus' response is also the most 
direct rebuke of Satan. Satan has kind of dropped all pretenses uh, at this point. He doesn't even call Christ the Son of God here in this one. I think because he understands just what, what, a, what a bold call to rebellion this is. And so Jesus, I think, is equally clear in his rejection here. He, he's, he basically says, I've had enough with you, Satan. Be gone. And once again, we want to understand how this it can be a real temptation for Jesus. First of all, it's not an empty offer on Satan's part. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. And in many other places uh, in Scripture, the implication is very much that while he is ultimately still under the control of God, he nevertheless has some earthly power. And uh, it is possible then to deliver on what he is promising to Christ. Furthermore, you can kind of imagine the pull of this kind of offer. I mean, think what you could do with all the kingdoms of the earth. Think of how many people you could help. Think of how you could uh, impact and, and alter and direct the course of worldly events. And then there's the splendor. There's the glory. I think Satan throws this in very deliberately. He mentions this because, after all, is it not glory that Christ deserves? Is he not destined to be the king of kings and the king of all kingdoms? This is the clearest test of them all. Satan basically offers all of this and then says to Jesus, give your worship and your allegiance to me. But there is a problem with Satan's offer. It really is kind of a measly offer uh, if you think about it. Because under God, Jesus' authority and power extends over both the heavens and the earth. Satan doesn't mention anything about the heavens here because he can't. But Jesus has that power over, earth, over the earth and heavens. And in, when we read Matthew chapter 28, verse 18... Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There's a sense in which Satan is offering Jesus what he already has. And so Jesus, true to form, goes back to the account of the Israelites in the wilderness, back to Deuteronomy, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, paraphrasing verses 13 and 14, which calls upon the people to serve only God and to not go after other gods. And Jesus counters Satan's offer with this affirmation, and his allegiance remains with his heavenly Father. Satan's call to worship him, or really the temptation to worship anything other than God, is a call to eventual disappointment and spiritual death. True life can only be found in worship and allegiance to the one true God. To Jesus Christ. No matter how tempting the alternative may seem, we need to maintain our allegiance to Christ. Well, we come to the end of the account. Having endured and successfully resisted the temptations that are set before him, Christ is ministered to by the angels. God sends his strength and loving care to his son as he does to all his children. And as we close this study, I want to leave us just with three things very quickly to process, three takeaways for us to think about. The first is this. 
I want to suggest that life is a constant battle for allegiance. We may get lulled into a false sense of security by life's circumstances, but make no mistake, Satan is busy working hard to get us off track, calling us to move away from our allegiance to Christ in ever so subtle ways. He will dangle attractive solutions to our needs, promises of an easier life, power and the glory of wealth and earthly comforts, all manner of things which may seem good, but which he will also use to draw us away from Jesus. Perhaps it's just now that you are coming to recognize the emptiness of Satan's promises. Perhaps you've come to see that what Satan offers are empty lies and destruction. If that is true for you, then I invite you to declare your allegiance to Jesus and give your life to him. You can do that right where you are at this moment. Speak to God privately. Just pray to him. Acknowledge that you are lost. Admit your need and ask for forgiveness for your sin and give your heart and your life and your allegiance to Jesus. Look to him and him alone as your king and your savior. And if you've already done that, then I encourage you to head into your week expecting a battle for your loyalty, for your allegiance in many different ways. And that leads me into my second point, and it's this. Never underestimate the capacity of Satan to lead you astray, nor the intensity of the struggles that you're about to face. Satan is a master of deception and temptation. First of all, just, just take a look at, at what he did with Jesus. He knows how to push our buttons. He, he knows the pressure points where we are the weakest. And just as one example, as he approaches Jesus, he, he tries to use the word of God, which he knows is important to support his offer. That's, that's a very clever by itself. But then also, in effect, what he does when he tries to tempt Christ is he uses Christ's identity as part of the temptation. He says to him, if you are the Son of God, which Jesus is, then you should be able to do this and that. He actually uses that as part of his strategy. Now, he's unsuccessful, thanks to the fact that, that Christ has perfect character and is able to resist him. But he is masterful in his approach. He knows what he's doing. And if you think you know what Satan is going to do, or you're ready for him, then I have to say, don't kid yourself. He's been doing this for a long time, and he is 10 steps ahead of you and me in this. Realize just how incredibly effective he can be. And secondly, recognize the scope of what is at stake when those temptations come. When Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he was not simply wanting to trip up Jesus or to slow him down. He wanted to completely sabotage the work that he had come to do. Think of it this way. With every one of these temptations that Satan brought before Jesus, he was, in a way, trying to plant a seed and offering Jesus a way to avoid 
the cross. When he suggested making bread, Satan was really saying, you know, you can use your power to avoid suffering. When he suggested Jesus throw himself down from the temple, he was really suggesting that Jesus could call out his father and save him so that he wouldn't have to go to the cross. And when he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, he was suggesting to him that Jesus could become the king of kings and the ruler of all without having to be the suffering servant that gives his life for his people. Satan, in every one of those temptations, was offering Jesus a way out. And furthermore, if Jesus had yielded to any one of those temptings in the desert, he would have been disqualified from being that perfect sacrifice that you and I need in order for the forgiveness of our sin. So what was at stake in the wilderness was nothing less than the cross itself. And without the cross, Jesus would have utterly failed in his mission and you and I would have been without hope and destined for an eternity in hell. That was Satan's ultimate plan. And so when he comes for you and me, make no mistake, he's not just coming to give us a bad day. He is coming to try to destroy us in any way and in every way he possibly can. And that leads me to my third point, and it's simply this. You, you can't hope to stand against this kind of attack on your own. This passage should fill you with a holy fear, not a paralyzing fear, but a deep and abiding awareness and respect of the spiritual realities around us. And it should remind us all that we can stand against Satan, but only as Jesus did, with God's help. Jesus was led into the spirit, led into the desert by the Spirit. He faced temptation doubtlessly in the power of that Spirit. And you and I need that same Spirit's help if we're to find victory in this. We can have victory because the same power that led Jesus to victory belongs to us if we belong to him. So my encouragement is this. Seek moment by moment the fullness of the Spirit's power within you. Pray for it. Trust in it. Live with the confidence that it is yours. And if you do that, I am sure that 2021 will be the year that more than ever, you send the devil packing and you live in the fullness of God's life and light in you. Please pray with me. King Jesus, in the coming months and days, in this coming hour, with every choice that we face, every decision we must make, every opportunity that comes our way, help us to choose you. Amen.